and welcome to Days of Learning podcast. I'm your host, David Nelson, and what a joy it is to be here on this fall day. The Days of Learning podcast, where we discuss all things around health, medicine, health promotion, community engagement, and equity. Days of Learning is sponsored by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, Wisconsin Department of Health, the Milwaukee County Organizations Promoting Prevention, and the Medical College of Wisconsin. I'm just thrilled today to have Corey Joe Biddle with us. And Corey Joe is the executive director of Fuel Milwaukee. She's the vice president of community engagement for MMAC, and that stands for the Metro Milwaukee Association of Commerce. We will refer to that as MMAC because the word is so long. <laughs> And I met Corey Joe this fall at an orientation for some medical students at the medical college. And she was our navigator and moderator. And she did such a fabulous job of integrating health and community and future learnings that I said, man, I got to get her on the show. So Corey Joe Biddle, welcome to Days of Learning Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Oh man, this is going to be a cool conversation. So take us through your journey. How are you the executive director of Fuel Milwaukee and the vice president of MM, at MMAC? How'd you get to this point? So I'll, I was thinking about um, how far back I wanted to go in the journey. And I'll tell a little bit because I have a very Milwaukee-esque um, story and my experience really has come full circle with me joining the staff of Fuel and now running the organization. So I'm a Milwaukee native. I always say that I was actually born in California, but I've been here since I was a baby. Really, Milwaukee is all I know. I only left Milwaukee when um, I went to college. I went to Oral Roberts University in the sexy city of Tulsa, Oklahoma. <laughs> I just really wanted to leave Milwaukee. So I had the same kind of experience as many people that grow up here in a very segregated city, right? So I grew up on the north side of Milwaukee. Um, I went to Rufus King High School and had a pretty rough uh, time getting through high school because I was just ready to be out and ready to be done with school and um, probably dealing with a little bit of depression, I think, and not... Mm -hmm not realizing what it, what I was, what was going on. And I just wasn't connecting to the experience. I wasn't making a lot of friends. It just, I just felt like something is off. Like I just need to get out of here. Right. So I actually kind of dropped out of high school pretty late in the process. I was already well into my senior year and I just went to MATC and converted my credits that I already had to a, uh, a high school equivalency diploma essentially I got a GED because I had enough credits and I had already been accepted to Oral Roberts. I already knew I was going to college and I just took this different path that I think a lot of folks didn't understand, but I knew I wasn't going to graduate if I had to keep going to class every day because I was so just, it just felt off to me. I'm not, I wasn't sure what was going on. Whenever I would go into the school, it was like, Oh, it's just kind of dark. And I just, I'm not connecting with the teachers and I wasn't connecting with the students. And it just, I just felt this is really weird, which was 
strange because I was always popular growing up, really outgoing, always had a lot of friends, loved being around people, a people person just, and I got to King and I just couldn't make that connection. And I think it really, um, my love for community and to be able to connect and click with people, that was my first indication that I was like, I need people, like I need mm -hmm. a community. And when I didn't have it, I really floundered in that environment. Um, but going to college saved the day for me. It was, I hopped on that plane in August of uh, 1998. <laughs> and I went to Oral Roberts University. It was my first time ever really being outside of Milwaukee for any period of time. And, you know, I was almost 18 and I'm like on my own, you know, mm -hmm. here in this, in this new world. And we stayed in the dorms. And there were lots of great folks for me to meet. And it was like, I was just revived. You know, mm. I was just revived. And I connected to the work and the people and um, just had a great time. Once I finished at, um, I did two years at Oral Roberts, came back home and finished up at Mount Mary. The same thing, very small uh, college, now university, but then it was Mount Mary College, super small. I knew everybody. I knew all the professors, knew all the students. I was on student government. I just started to learn, okay, this is what I need. This is what I like. Like, I really like knowing people, knowing their stories, uh, knowing what's important to them. Um, graduated from college and had gotten an internship at Manpower. Mm -hmm. Now it's called Manpower Group, but Manpower then was in Glendale in Milwaukee, right on Port mm -hmm. Washington Road. You see all the beautiful flags on Port Washington. Now sure. the same thing is downtown, right? So you see it right. kind of clustered downtown, but it was really striking coming up Port Washington Road, seeing all those flags. I was so proud to have this internship. I was an English major mm -hmm. and Manpower has a sales uh, force that's international sure. and they need the writers to work with the sales folks. And that's what I did. I was a proposal writer. So I would listen right. to the salespeople's pitch. I would put it in word form and put the graphics and everything in there. And we would submit it to the folks. So that's kind of what I did. It wasn't the best fit for me because I was really, I didn't get a chance to interact with folks. Here we go again with that theme, right? So mm -hmm. I'm sitting behind a desk writing proposals, but uh, it's not my favorite because I don't actually get to see the customer or talk to the customer or touch feel. I left Manpower and went to America's Black Holocaust Museum to write grants. Mm -hmm. I ended up writing grants and it's a sm very small museum. The staff was like two or three people. So I'm writing grants, I'm giving tours, um, you know, balancing books, I'm doing everything. Again, right back in the middle of the, the hustle and bustle of people and energy and stories and frustrations and excitement. I love that. I did that for two and a half years, eventually becoming the executive director of the museum, left the museum and came to MMAC uh, under the division of Fuel Milwaukee, which is a young professionals group that is really designed to help people become a part of a community. So we have 7,000 members and they're 21 to 40 is our target, but we have people that are 50, 60, 70, that come to our events and we host mixers and give events and tours and anything to help people really understand Milwaukee and the place that they live and connect to it. So I ended up like in this, I've been there for, I don't know, 12 years, 
So I'm in the right. I want to. You're getting ahead of me, and and that's okay. I I love your I love your enthusiasm because I know you love your work. Yeah. But I want to go back. Sure. We're gonna we're gonna go back to high school. Okay. We're gonna go back to high school. You know, and I've heard this before. I wonder if you, you know, there, there's an experience that happens at different stages of life and you've got the elementary, the middle school, the high school, the college experience. And I wonder if you just outgrew it. Mm. Say more about that. What do you mean? Well, you know, you said that you, you said something was off and, you know, you, you get these these phases of life when, when we were younger, we did these things and now we go, mm, I'm not doing that anymore. That doesn't really interest me. And I wonder if at that age, because you said, I just needed to get out of here. Yeah. And, and, and so if you had said, I need a break, I need to, I need to grow in other areas if that's not what happened. And you said, well, as soon as you got, you got to Tulsa, which has its challenges yeah. uh, for people of color, that uh, historical challenges, that if you just didn't go, you know what, I can navigate that if I have my people around me. Yeah. What do you think? I think, so I think a lot of what you're saying is, is right on. So I, the piece that I left out of the story was, I went to, I went to Golden Meir. So in Milwaukee, there's the gifted and talented track. And if you're lucky enough to get into it back in the day when I was going to school, it was the difference between the education where a lot of folks struggle in a typical, um, public school and versus the experience of having this very concentrated, challenging curriculum. Um, and this, we were in a, a bubble, a cluster of kids that were declared to be gifted and talented. Sure. You know, so I think it, it did something to me um, psychologically that I didn't realize was happening. I was in this cluster. Uh, so I went to Golden Meir, and then I went to Morris Middle School, which was the gifted and talented middle school. And the next step for me naturally would have been King or Riverside. The year that I came out of middle school, they changed the system here. So if you went to a gifted and talented school, when you jumped to high school, you didn't automatically get into your school. You were myself. So I went to Custer for one year and I put in for a transfer to go to King, which is what I thought I wanted. Well, while I was at Custer, it was a different feeling because there mm -hmm. wasn't this sort of uh, fraternity mm -hmm. of gifted and talented kids. It was just kids at large in a way. There were no hierarchies. Nobody was popular. Nobody was the cool kid. It was, it just didn't, there were, the school had its drawbacks, which is why I didn't stay there. But I think socially, I learned that a lot of the um, things that I had placed value on in terms of where I fit in the social structure and if I was popular or not, and if I was important or if I was, you know, the most well-liked, these are all things that subconsciously were important to me, had become important to me because we were in that cluster, you know, that gifted and talented, we are the yeah, ones. I Nobody I'd actually did that, but we but we felt it. But once I went to Custard, uh, I didn't feel that anymore, and I think it wasn't as important to me. But when I transferred hmm. to King, I went right back into that same culture. The culture hadn't changed for them; it changed for me, though, and I just didn't fit in anymore. And I I struggled with that in a 
it ended up being in a good way because I learned that the sort of clickiness that a lot of people hide behind <laughs> or that we use to protect ourselves from from people who aren't like us, it it didn't feel right to me anymore. So for me, it was more the, so it wasn't the academics at, at King. It was great. You know, it was a great school. It was more the social environment and how I was evolving as a person. And like you said, I think I had grown out of it. I was just over it. Yeah, I'm going to say something else in here. And I, as I study the issue of racial reconciliation in our community and elsewhere, too many times when you were talking about Custer, and this isn't being critical of the school system, but it's, it's really to be critical uh, of the systemic and structural racism that exists. Too many times children of color don't get the affirmation that they need in order to succeed. You know, you were labeled, if you will, you were given the title of gifted and talented, and you were told through, the, through your orientation that way that you were something special. That's right. And too many times they call it, in, in, the, in the structural racism that exists, they call it teaching to the floor. Too many teachers don't have high expectations of black and brown children. Yes. And so they teach in that way. And I wonder, Corey Joe, I'm not going to get into the psych of it, though I do a little bit. If, if you didn't realize some of that, that there are groups of children that aren't getting what they're getting at King and Golden Meir and other places. It was night and day. Yes. It was night so, and day. So for you, the issue of equity and the issue of you might not have called it that, but the systemic racism that exists was, was bearing true. Yep. I can, can, you can see it. it can you was, tell us, I didn't grow up here. I grew up in Chicago and, and I was a part of the movement from the city to the suburbs, redlining. Mm. Um, didn't know what it was at the time as a, as a baby, but you grew up in the 80s and the 90s. You came of it, you were... 1980-ish, if you graduated high school in 1998. So uh, I can do that kind of math in public. <laughs> I, I call it, you were born in the 80s and came of age in the 90s. Yeah. What was Milwaukee like then? Well, so I grew up in Berryland Projects and spent a lot of time on that side of town and in the Sherman Park area. And I my experience with being with other races was because of the school that I went to. But at home, it was, everybody was black. Mm -hmm. Everywhere I looked, everybody was black. We would, we would go outside and on the weekends, when the sun was up, we were outside. We did mm -hmm. not come back in the house until street light. <laughs> and our, uh, the Havenwood National, oh, the Havenwood State Forest was basically my playground. We would go in Havenwoods, we would catch garter snakes and frogs and eat blackberries. I mean, it was just, um, it was just really carefree and fun. And then I would go to school. And when I was going to Golden Meir, I would go to school and turn in my assignments, my collage or whatever I had done with, you know, glue sticks and magazine clippings and, you know, and the other kids had like computer printouts and binders. And, you know, I was like, well, I was one of the poor kids in the school right. and I knew it. 
you know, and I knew it. I had become friends with uh, Alderman Nick Kovacs, baby sister, her name is Delia. Delia Kovac was my best friend and they lived off Lake Drive. And her parents would come to get me on some weekends and take me for sleepovers. So they would drive to the projects and get me and then take me out to Lake Drive to their beautiful house. And mm -hmm. all their neighbors had beautiful houses and all the kids over there spoke, you know, more than one language. And it was like a different, it was like a different world. You know, I felt um, accepted and ostracized all at once. I mm. felt like um, I fit in and I didn't all at once. Um, but I remember having this carefree feeling of being a kid, but inside feeling like there was something different. You know, there was another experience. There was another world that I could be a part of if I just could figure out how to navigate and get in, you know, and get into that world. And um, I didn't, I didn't know what it, what that all meant when I was a kid, but I remember thinking about it. It's like, I was poor, but I love, I mean, it was a great life. I didn't, you know, we, we got a, a state forest in our backyard. It was fun, you know, but there was, this, there were these other elements where I was like, okay, there's these, there's other kids that live different ways. And there's other parents that work different ways and have different mm -hmm. schedules and have different money and they eat different food. And um, it was the beginning of me starting to be exposed to those differences and um, a little bit aspirational uh, for me. Sure. Um, but, you know, I was okay with what we were, where we were too in my life. <clears throat> what did your folks say to you about this? this this life if you will and and, and i <clears throat> i work a lot with uh food insecure families and, and when we bring new volunteers in people think of uh people that are of low income or poor people they think that all these their heads are down they're sad all the time you know they got the distended bellies and it's like you just you're you're playing into a characterization Poor does not real does not make you unhappy. Yeah. But there are certain considerations when you say, you know, we grew up poor and we grew up in the projects. What what did your parents warn you of or or, or caution you on or instruct you in? I remember my mother just being very open to um letting me go on these sleepovers and being around you know, she had, she had allowed me to go to this, this school. And I think she knew that it was going to expose me to different ways of being. And I think she, I mean, she was very open to letting me explore that. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't remember going back to her and saying, they live so differently than I remember there was a house on the market <laughs> in uh, Delia's neighborhood. <laughs> and they had an open house. And her parents wanted to see the house. So while it was over there, we had gone through and, you know, and I saw the open house and, and um, it was, you know, however many thousands. And I'm like, oh, my mom, I remember, I think I said, oh, my mom should be able to buy this house. I mean, probably trying to fit in, not really knowing. And so when I got back home, I'm like, mom, there's, <laughs> there's a house for sale in, Del in Delia's area. And she's like, girl, I can't afford a, a house over there. That was the only real conversation we had about like, 
this juxtaposition or this comparison in my mind of like yes. two different worlds. It wasn't really an issue. It wasn't something that we brought that I really brought up. There were a couple of times at school where, um, you know, we went on field trips to. I remember we took a bus to to Chicago, and all the kids were saying, "Oh, um, I'm gonna get money from my mom, so when we go to Chicago, I can buy, you know, I can buy things." Sure. So I told my mom, sure. "Mom, all the kids are gonna have money." Um, you know, can I have some money? And she gave me, I think like $5, I think. And I'm sure. like, Hey, okay, good. You know? And then I get to on the bus and the kids are like showing their, you know, $25, $30, 40, 50, sure. you know, and I quietly just kept my $5 in my pocket. So I, it was more, I think I didn't, I didn't say a lot to my mom mm -hmm. about what I was feeling. Um, it was more of a quiet recognition. Yes and um a little bit of internalized like you know i'm not fitting in here yes. or i don't have what they have but i for my experience it was always cured by academics because mm. in that environment what made me belong was that i was smart so it didn't really matter how much money i had or didn't have if i was the one that wrote the best paper and the teacher recognized me for it, you know, now all of the kids want to come talk to me and how did you write this book report or how did you, you know, so it kind of equalized things. And I think that that made me okay. You know, it's yeah. like, this is just different for me, you know, but it wasn't a, a big, a big glaring thing. It was just a quiet recognition. Well, you know, I, I want to give credit to your mom. Um, and, and what's your mom's name? Denise. Denise. I want to give credit to Denise because I'm going to guess Denise is probably my age. And when we were growing up, we didn't navigate this way. Mm. Blacks and whites didn't generally because of she was in the, born in the 60s or 70s. We didn't navigate. And there, were, there, was, there, was, a there was a greater tension at this time. And, and, yeah. and, and it was more overt. And so within your mom's lifetime, she didn't have that navigation. Yeah. And, so and you she really were, you were a first generation. Yes, absolutely. And my mother um was born in uh 57. Okay. So she she actually passed away 2 years ago and okay. um we used to she was my best friend. I mean, we had so many conversations about what it was like for her growing up yeah. and um you know, navigating, you know, the the feeling that she had of being proud to be black and she had really long, Oh, her hair was so long when she was mm -hmm. a kid. And my grandmother was a cosmetologist. So all of her kids had just really beautiful and she would press their hair straight. And yes. in the seventies where everybody started wearing afros, my mom was like, no, 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 I cannot walk up in school with this long hair. She, and she went to the barber shop and cut her hair off to her mom's chagrin. <laughs> my grandma like cries like you've got all your people. but my mom I remember her telling me how proud she was to just have um that constant message in the background proud to be black proud to be black proud to be black but she also had the reality of um she didn't have the same educational opportunities she wanted to go to college and she never did uh she had you know, my brother and I and was a single parent. So she was working constantly. And there were a lot of dreams and goals and things that she had that she actually never was able to realize. So 
I think she was able to live through me. You know, she really positioned me as to the extent that she could to take advantage of what was possible, you know, for me. Well, your, you know, your grandmother was a, a, a product of the, your grandmother was in the midst of, of the civil rights issues yep. and your mom was born in that time. And mm -hmm. so she would have experienced that. It's not even overt. It's, 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 it's very direct racism. Yep. And, and so, you know, you are that first generation. And I love that you said that your mom, Denise lived her experiences through you mm -hmm. and encourage you. And I, I really want to say, you use the word navigate. And I want to ask you this question. Yeah, we might get to question two. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> how did those experiences help you navigate in present sense? Yeah, I think I I, I was aware that um, that there was, I was able to live in two worlds and speak two different languages. So I knew how to be around black people and be in the hood, you know, and I also knew how to go on Lake Drive and, you know, not stand out like a, a sore thumb. I used to, when I was younger, I used to switch, do it, you know, they call it cold switch. And I used to do a heavy switch where I would go mm. from, my mother always spoke in slang unless she was at work. She was a weight loss counselor for Jenny Craig. So she had a lot of like, she presented to people a lot. So she had a lot of really interesting jobs where she had to present to people who didn't look like her, but because of her upbringing, she would rebel. So she used a lot of slang. So I grew up in the house with a lot of slang. Like she would say police instead of police. So I thought it was police for a long time. <laughs> or she would say insurance instead of insurance. And it was just, it was just certain things that in our home, we were just comfortable. It like slang for me is so comfortable. And what people would call Ebonics, that is my, that's my first language. It's natural for me. When I was a kid, I thought I associated speaking proper English with taking the bass out of my voice and trying to sound, trying to sound more white. Yes, teacher. And I would do that. I would like sing almost. So my voice is naturally deep and raspy, yeah. but I would take it out of my voice so I could fit in with other kids. Yeah, totally. I get that. I agree. Wow. I would do it every day, a heavy switch. But I wow. learned as I started to get older that I could speak both languages, but I didn't have to like change myself so much. So now if I'm in an environment where I have to present to people that don't use the same slang words I use, I can still use the raspiness of my natural voice and just speak a language that I know I will be accepted in. I know I can't come in and be like, I ain't doing that. You know, I know I can't do that. <laughs> you know I, mean? I can't speak like that because as soon as I do, even though I'm saying that, no, mm, I take exception to that, I'd rather not. I'm saying the exact same thing, but the people who are listening need to hear it in a certain way. I learned that. So not just with slang, but just any environment. If I'm talking to salespeople, if I'm talking to young professionals, if I'm talking to baby, baby, baby boomers, the words that they are accustomed to hearing, I learned the power of words and how to say stuff so people could hear you. Okay, so I gotta ask you. Yeah. Your, your mom was a bit of a rebel. 
Yes. And she would do it. Are you saying that you've never done it? You know what? I wasn't the rebel. Okay. That's I fair. Wasn't. I, be, I was the baby, so I have an older brother. And I think he was more, he was like the knucklehead. He was like the <laughs> class clown. He was, he was the one that's like, given like, the. Uh, there was a, <laughs> a story once of a, a teacher was like scolding him and like got really close in his face. And he's like, he got in trouble for, for whatever he does. So he came home and my mom is yelling at him. And I'm like, well, what happened? And he's telling me, well, the teacher was yelling all in my face. And I said, well, what did you do? He said, I told her, your breath stank. <laughs> and I remember that because my mother tries so hard not to laugh. And he was like, he's in trouble. She scolded him. He says that, and we just all just bust out laughing. Because he was just so, he was so bad. <laughs> he was the one. And he would give my mother so much grief that I think I did the opposite. Okay. So I'm like, okay, let me, you know, so I would be the one to try to make things easier for her. So I never, I mean, there was very, I mean, she, she would tell people that I gave her one day of grief growing up. I ran away one time because I got in trouble for something. And I can't remember what it was. And I ran away to my next door neighbor and hid in her closet. <laughs> And my mother couldn't find me. And that was the one day of grief. But I, you know, I wasn't one of these kids. Like I had friends that were like stealing cars and like right. taking money from their parents or like skipping school. And that just really, it just wasn't my thing. Like even when I did bad things, like when I, when I knew that school wasn't for me and I got to the point where it was like, I wasn't enjoying school or going to school. I'm like, look, I need to just get a GED and get out of here. I've always tried to do things in a way that it wouldn't cause her stress. So at least it's like I drop out, but I was already accepted to college. You know what I mean? So it wasn't, it wasn't something that was going to cause her stress. So Corey Joe, I do want to ask you though, because I, you know, this is a, the space that I'm in and I'm, I'm, I'm always striving to learn. You, you use that phrase. You were knowledgeable about making that heavy switch. You had it, you made it when you were young. Mm. what about those that never do that mm -hmm. how does that impact their lives when when a white power structure hears that culture come out it's it's tough because there i mean there, we've had some interns that we've hired through fuel that i've had to to coach and some of them, some of them are coachable because there's, there's slight things. So I'll give you an example. We had an intern that wore earrings. He was a, um, a young man. He would have these diamond earrings and, but he was other than that, perfectly dressed, well-dressed. And he would come through the office and, and do something that was very cultural for black people. So in our very um, white office, at MMAC, a lot of Republicans, very businessy CEOs. I mean, imagine, I'm painting a picture of this environment. So he would walk through with his earrings and his suit. And people would say, hi, how you doing? And he, how are you today? And he would say, blessed. <laughs> Which for Black people, that's a normal response to say blessed. 
because it's a very, I mean, it's a religious response. It's very Christian, cogent, you know, it's like blessed and highly favored. That's the rest of it. That's how the old people, yes, it is. you know, so he would say blessed. And I didn't, the first couple of times he did it, I didn't think anything of it. I thought it was a little odd. I'm like, I got to tell him not to do that here. But what made me actually tell him to not do it is I look, I started to look at the reaction of people when he would say it and they would like jump a little bit because they didn't know how to respond to that. It's like, if you say, hey, how are you doing? And you say, oh, I'm fine. And then the person says, oh, okay, that's good. You know how to respond. But if you say bless, it's like a call and response. It's like, what's the, what's the response to blessed? <laughs> and person after person, they would get so uncomfortable and so awkward. And the same thing with his earring. So I just sat him down and I said, hey, look, when you're at work, you got to remember, these people don't know how to respond to you when you say blessed. If you're at church, that's an environment where that language makes sense. But here, they don't know what to say. So you're just making them uncomfortable. So just say, I'm well, and just keep going. And take those earrings out when you come in here. He responded to that because I was black and yeah. I was able to give him that, take your hat off when you come in the house, boy. You know, he responded to yes. that. Yes. But he understood also what I was telling. He was already, you know, he was all junior year in college. He had made it far enough and seen enough of what I was saying that it would resonate with him. Okay, this is why she's saying this. Okay, I, he knew enough of the other language to be able to make the shift. There are students that leave high school and there are talks to the floor right and the teachers never challenge them never correct their english never give them a book that, that is you know annoyingly long never push them to see a different way and they only can operate in that certain space and yes. what you see is when they come into an environment that is not their own, those kids are just as uncomfortable as the people who are around them because they know that you can tell right away. They know they don't fit in. Right. They know they're not being accepted. They know they don't sound like everybody else, but they haven't learned the other language or learned that it's okay to have both languages. You know, it's like you don't want to feel like a sellout. So then you lean even more into the slang, which ostracizes you even more. I mean, you gotta be able to switch back and forth. That's in any, I mean, there's no, we're not gonna go to a different country and not know how to speak that language or have a translator. You just gotta be able to do it. I'm, I'm gonna, it, it's interesting that you say that. And, and I have, um, I spend a lot of time in the black community and I've been invited in. And I know my place, but I've been invited in. And, and I'm honored that I get invited in and so that I get to use the mannerisms. Yep. And I got to tell you, I say blessed all the time. <laughs> yeah. You, but but you I, know what, Dr. Nelson, if you say it, it's charming, you know, it's like, oh, it's so sweet. You know, if a black kid says it, people jump. Yes. You know? Yes. It, it, but it is interesting because you, I want to go back to this and, and and maybe we'll use this as our theme, this idea of navigation. You know, we have to be intentional about understanding, and I, I talk to my students all the time, about the structures of power that exist. And we can be critical of them, but we still have to navigate them. Yeah. We, can un, we can strive to undo them, but until we do, we have to say, how do we bring people along 
Mm-hmm. Right. And, and for, you know, this isn't for you and me. This is for those that are in elementary school and their kids to undo, to continue to undo the things that are happening now. Yes. But I, I just wondered if in this, if the things that Denise taught you that you're passing on now. Mm. Yeah, all the time. Um, to my kids, you know how people say you turn into your parents? Yes. I'm, t- <laughs> I'm definitely turning into her. You know, um, I'm going to say, but, but the added and, and you're helping those who are not just your children. Yeah. So you, as one of my friends says, you're becoming the mama bear. I am. And the mama bear take care of her cubs all the time. All the time. No, and I I could say, ain't no stopping it. Ain't no stopping it. I am. I mean, I, if, if I, like, because I work in a young professional organization, even when, I mean, when I came to the organization, I was 27. And even then I was older than a lot of people who were in the organization. So 70% of our members are white. So most of the time I'm dealing with young professionals who don't look like me, but I understand where they are in the journey. Mm -hmm. You know, so we had a professional development boot camp, and there was a, a, a session on having a backbone and communicating with confidence. And there was a young white woman that walked up to me after the session. She had just graduated from college and it was this was her first job. And she's thanking me for putting together the workshop and how saying how much she appreciated it. And she started crying because she said, so often I feel like I don't know what I'm doing or everyone else is smarter than me. And I'm not communicating and saying what I really mean. I'm afraid to speak up or speak up for myself. And this class has really helped me. You know, black, white, red, or green. I understood that because I remember that first job out of college. And it's like, I felt the same way. You know, I felt the same way. And I just told her, like, listen, everything that you need is already in you. This is what my mom told me. I'm telling her the exact same things that my mother told me. There's, you have common sense, you have a brain that works, and everything that you need is already inside of you. Just trust yourself. And that's the same thing that I said to her. I say it to anyone when I see them kind of in that space because we all go through it. You know, we all go through those same things. You know, I can't help but think, Corey Joe, about, I'm going to go back to your mom. She's precious. I, I, yeah. I wish your mother were here to, to she could join you on this interview. God bless her soul. <laughs> But, you know, she encouraged you to, to experiment, if you will, uh, to, to, to play in that space. Maybe experiment's not the right word, um, but to, to try it, right? And there might be some negative reactions. And, and when you say everything you have is inside of you, when we think about a lens of equity, you know, we need to have relationships with people who are different from us. Yes. That's, that's the only way you learn. And maybe for this person, it was the only time someone that's in your position has told her that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she'll remember that and pass it on. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I just, I just want to shake people and say, believe in yourself. I mean, and as I'm saying that to others, I, I still, you know, I'm saying it to myself every day. There's a new challenge and something, um, something different. 
that I face, but like in the, in the lens of equity, you're absolutely right. It's like as, as many differences as we can point out in the way that people are raised or the languages we speak or our slang or whatever, at our core, it's the same concerns. It's the same desires. I mean, we're more alike than we are different. I know people say that all the time, but the older I get, the more I believe that. Let's talk about question two. Okay. <laughs> 30 minutes in. I, uh, we're, we're more than that and that's okay. We'll, 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 we'll navigate it. We'll figure it out together. <laughs> Tell me about Fuel Milwaukee and its role within the community. So Fuel started in 2001 and back then it was called Young Professionals of Milwaukee. So it was like literally aimed at young professionals who were living in Milwaukee and working in Milwaukee. And a lot of them weren't from Milwaukee originally. So they had been recruited by Manpower, Northwestern Mutual, Baird, uh, GE, all of these companies recruiting all of this young talent and kind of saying, you know, from nine to five, we got you when you're at work. But then when they were off work, they didn't know what to do mm -hmm. or they didn't know where to go or how to meet people or how to connect. I mean, and this is largely true for people who are, you know, natives to Milwaukee and the Milwaukee area, especially if you grew up in a suburb or segre segregated uh, part of our city, you might know your area, but the natural tendency is not for people to explore and you know who wants to just walk up in a in a establishment by themselves and they've never been there before you want to go with a group of people or you want to have somebody invite you or you want to so that's really what fuel is we're the organization that is focused on helping people engage in the community we want you to connect and meet other people we want you to know all of the really interesting places in milwaukee that speak to you and speak to your soul and your spirit um and really want you to have a seat at the tables that you, you know, that you want. Pull up a chair, you know, you want to volunteer, you want to be on the board, uh, you want to focus on, you know, homelessness, uh, you know, uh, voting, you know, whatever it might be that's your passion. We, throughout the year, every year, do different events that people can plug into to meet the leaders in different industries and mm -hmm. to make friends or connections in those industries. So we connect folks, take them around the city and, you know, help them fall in love with Milwaukee. What have you noticed in your time as executive director about young professionals and this city? The biggest, the biggest aha for me, because I'm a Milwaukee native. So there's a lot of things that natives do that, we don't realize we do until someone who's not from here points it out. But mm. Milwaukeeans are very clicky. Mm. And I use that word, maybe there's a better word, but I personally have friends that still from go to my ear. Sure. <laughs> you know, I still, a lot of my friends are people I met when I was like 11, you know? Right. You know, so those middle school friends, elementary school, high school friends, we, if you're from Milwaukee, because it's not a very transient city, you go off to college, but if you come back, you know, you kind of lock in with those people that you knew growing up. And because of that, it makes it hard for transplants to make friends here. Because our attitude is like, I got friends already. We're not really looking for friends. Now, the mm -hmm. difference is if you go to Chicago or D.C. or L.A., where people are constantly cycling through the city, the attitude is, 
what's where are the people what's the cool places they're searching Milwaukee's mm-hmm. not a searching doesn't have that searching spirit so it makes it tough when folks move to Milwaukee and they have a searching spirit but they can't connect with anyone so um we have these two groups of people that are really in our network that everybody's we know we call them connections or professional we want to make friends okay people want to make friends and as an adult not necessarily knowing how to do that without feeling awkward and we that's a that was an aha for me because a big part of our work is networking and helping people to connect on more than a surface level and it takes a little bit of work because Sometimes I got to put two transplants together. Mm-hmm. They're motivated to make friends. The, the, the natives are, might, might be motivated to see the new restaurant or to go on this tour, but they're not looking to walk away from this with new friends. So the way that we build relationships and why has, has really been interesting um, when it comes to, to young professionals for me. Has the structure of the city impacted your work at all? When we talk about, you know, it's known as one of the most segregated cities and there's not a lot of cultural mixing. I've seen it better in my 14 years, but I I think we have a ways to go. Has that impacted this work that you do? Yeah, I mean, it, it impacts the, you know, most of the people that are in the fuel network either live or work in downtown, just the sheer number of companies is a, you know, downtown Milwaukee kind of group and 70% of the folks are, are uh, white. So when we're looking at event locations, and I'll give you an example, Judge Derek Mosley, who is also from Chicago, mm-hmm. <laughs> easily one of my favorite speakers, very engaging, loves Milwaukee. I mean, he's just a great person. Great guy. He started a new series called The Leadership Luncheon. And Judge Mosley was one of our first speakers. So a hallmark of the Leadership Luncheon is that we let the speaker choose the location. Mm-hmm. He chose the Northside YMCA, where he okay. was the chair of the board there. So this is like 12th and North Avenue. It's mm-hmm. like like six minutes outside of downtown, not far from downtown at all. Oh. When he suggested that, I knew immediately that the bulk of fuel members would not want to go there. Because when I say 12th and North Avenue, in their minds, that's the ghetto and that's a dangerous right. neighborhood. I'm not going there. Mm. So I shared that with Judge Mosley and I said, look, we're going to do this, but I'm going to need you to help me with the marketing and to really push this because they're not naturally going to just sign up for this. Now, if we had said it was going to be at the Fister, you know, no problem, sold mm-hmm. out. But the North Side Y, this is going to be hard. We put out the first marketing. And like I, like I said, folks weren't signing up for it. Um, Hispanic people sign up fine. Black people sign up fine. But the white people were a little bit more hesitant. So we started getting very deliberate in the messaging about how far it was from downtown, about you know what other things were around it. And Judge Mosley, his message was, look, all of Milwaukee is, is yours. All of yeah. it not just certain parts. So we're challenging you to come to this space, have lunch with us. It's the middle of the day. It's perfectly safe. There's kids here. You know, he had to get, he had to get that, you know, blunt. And we did a lot of 
you know, it was it was done in a way that was kind of cute and fun and we used social media, but he got his message across. By the time we were done, the room was packed. And he said that it at that point, it had been the most diverse room he had ever spoken to mm-hmm. in Milwaukee. It took work, but people got the message. We just had to be very deliberate about like, I get it. You're scared to come over here because you heard it's dangerous. At that time, I was living on 10th and North Avenue. So I knew it was fine. You know, like I live right there. Huh. But we had to tell them, I get it. You, somebody told you it's scary over here. <laughs> somebody told you you were going to get robbed over here and you believed it. And guess what? If I was in Chicago or a strange city and somebody told me that, I would believe it too. But I'm telling you, and Judge Mosley is telling you, it's okay for you to come over here at noon. And I'm not going to tell you to come over here at 10 o'clock at night, but at right. noon, you can come over here. You know, And we just had to be real about what the perceptions were and how people feel and it was packed. I mean, there was like people standing up a, a, along the wall once we were done. And his whole talk was about the segregation in Milwaukee and how we need to go into all the different parts of the city and experience of all of it. You know, it was great. It was great. You know, we had, we had a saying growing up, if you look for trouble, you find it. <laughs> but I, I want to ask you, though, because of the, you know, it's another sign of, uh, of the structural inequities that exist. And, and some would say the idea that that is a, a, a macroaggression against Black people. Um, the Black person is dangerous. The Black person is to be avoided. The Black neighborhoods are to be avoided. Instead of celebrating the beauty and the diversity because the black is the black culture is not a monolith, mm-hmm. but we need to celebrate it because I, I, I drive the city every week. I drive the whole city, uh, thousands of miles. And I tell people, I had a new ride along yes on Saturday, and I said, there's a vibe to each part of the city, and it's glorious. Yeah, I love to get and we walk around, and it's like <laughs> nobody hassles us, it's nope. beautiful, and they're like, welcome, it's cool. People say hi, yep. If you look for trouble, you find it. Mm-hmm. But how do we, I want to say undo it. I don't think that's quite right. What do, where do we go from here? I think for me, whenever I think about, because there's, there's parts of the city that I wouldn't live in or parts that I wouldn't walk through, like I said, after dark. And for me, it's the reality of the fact that segregation in Milwaukee is so tied to our history of redlining and so entangled with um, economic instability. If we had a Bronzeville or like a lot of black neighborhoods that were like, okay, this is a 99% black neighborhood, but the medium income is the same as the rest of the city, then yeah, I would be okay with that. Then it can, it could, that Bronzeville or that black area could show the height of our culture and the richness of of everything that it is to be black. Mm -hmm. But our segregation here is so riddled with poverty. Yes. And it's so tied to redlining that for me, it's a matter of just being realistic about how we got here and why our segregation looks the way it looks. And the fact that it's gonna take money and resources to reverse that. I'm actually okay with some clustering of cultures together because I think it creates an experience that we all can go into each other's world and experience that rich, deep culture. I actually think it's something cool about that. 
I also feel like if we have that, I need to be okay going to any suburb and not have people not want me there. You know, so it's it's Ooh. it's not just a matter of where we live. It's the attitudes about who should be there and why or why not and mm -hmm. why we're there. If you're living in 53205 and you have to be there because you can't afford to live anywhere else, that's going to create this cycle of yeah. every family and every kid, you know. So for me, it's like really looking at why we're separated in some ways it's that isolation or like not isolation but that clustering is good yes i think we can all agree to that but some of that clustering is not intentional like a person's heart is not to live and they want to live somewhere else but they just can't because either they can't afford it or because they don't feel welcomed anywhere else and that to me is the 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 root issue what do you think, and I want to ask this in this way, this idea that if we have these neighborhoods that are impacted by the segregation and redlining and structural racism, how does that impact the health of that community? I mean, just in every, in every possible way. I just think from, from mental health to our physical health and how, I mean, we kind of saw it with COVID, right? How COVID just sort of clustered in these economically depressed areas. And it wasn't because people aren't washing their hands or, you know, all of the other things that were kind of floating around. It's like the way that people in poor neighborhoods have to operate, you know, some of them are not going to have internet. They're not going to have laptops. They're not going to have a chance to work from home they're in these apartment buildings and living all on top of each other. And it's not the same as when you're spread out in homes or townhomes and, oh, um, you know, I'm not going back to work until 2021. That's not the experience in 53205, 53206. That's not their experience. If they don't go back to work, they don't get money. They have to get on the bus. Mm -hmm. They have to, you know, it's a, every, uh, all, of the, all of the things that we were being told not to do, poor people had to do just to survive. So I think, I mean, and that physically affects health in a very immediate way. I mean, COVID is a great example of that, but I think mental health, you know, for me, I grew up in Berryland projects, but it wasn't, um, the same experience of growing up in a neighborhood where there's drugs and shooting, you know, it was like, a, it was almost like a suburban, I was a sub suburban poor person in a way, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We were poor, mm -hmm. but there wasn't, I wasn't surrounded with crime. No one ever offered me drugs. You know, I was well into my thirties before I even really saw drugs, you know, and right. I was at a fuel event. <laughs> I was at a fuel event actually. You know, and it wasn't, a, it wasn't fuel members, but the place we were at, people were doing drugs and you could see it, you know, but, mm -hmm. and I was shocked. I was in my thirties, had never seen it. No one ever offered me drugs. I had never heard bullets. You know, our, our nuis nuisances in Berryland were the skunks coming from the woods sure. <laughs> and getting scared. Or, you know, we had a community garden and the, and the deer would come and sure. eat my zucchini, you know, so it's like, the zucchini my mom helped me plant. My experience was very different being poor and living in a place like where I live. But 
when um, I started to get a little bit more active in the political world and, you know, helping candidates for office, you have to um, knock on doors. Yes. And I started to do a lot of door knocking in some of the districts that, you know, were really economically, economically depressed. And it's like every other house is a vacant house. And there were kids outside just playing next to fields that were like full of debris and like dirty right. mattresses and just, you know, and I just, I'm looking at these kids and it's just like, they just have become, this isn't, this is just what it is, you know? But like you said, it's not like they were walking around depressed and downtrodden. They're kids. They were outside playing and being normal kids. But it, to me, it says something to you when your neighborhood looks like that. And then you drive somewhere else and you see a different experience. Remember the first time I took my kids to Pizza Man in Wauwatosa? We got out of the car and my son, who was probably like six at the time, he said, what town is this? <laughs> he, thought, he thought we had gone out of town because oh. it looked so different. Uh, we, we, no, we were at the, where were we? We were at the one downtown. Mm -hmm. we were downtown. It looks so different from the cobblestone and the sidewalk to the street. Like the streetscape was so different from what he was used to. He thought we were out of town in a different city, you know. So I just, I just think it that environment and neighborhood plays into every social determinant of health. I mean, it's like across the board. It just, it just affects you in every possible way to the frequency of which you go to the doctor, to the dentist, whether it's normalized, if you have insurance, if you have the money, like, can you imagine you have a cavity and you don't go, go because you don't have the money? You know, yes. people are like popping Tylenol because they don't have the money or need an ambulance and don't call an ambulance because they don't want to get that $600 bill right. on the other side of it. Like, this is the kind of stuff that people are, are, are dealing with. And my arm is broken, but I'm not going to go to the emergency room because I can't deal with that bill. And the arm heals, you know, all messed up. Like people are dealing with that every single day. And I, a lot of people who don't live that way do not know what it's like. You got to get on the bus and you don't have the dollar. I guess it's $2 now. When I was younger, it was a dollar. It, it was a dollar and 10 cents to get on the bus. And I couldn't go to school one day because I could not find the money. Right. I remember I was digging in the couch trying to see if I can find enough change in the couch to go to school. And when I, I ended up walking to school because I couldn't find the money. And I remember I got in trouble for being late and the principal, like the assistant principal just went off on me. And right. I was too afraid to tell him I'm late because I had to walk because I didn't have money to get on the bus. You know, because I didn't want to, it was so many people in the office, I didn't want to say that. But that is people's reality. Every day, worse than what I had growing up. I mean, every day. Yeah, we, we know of stories where people become homeless because mom missed the bus. Yep. 
Corey Joe, this is really wonderful. And I, I really love this idea of, we speak of this idea of intentionality and intentional intersections. And, and you being in the world of, of business with Fuel Milwaukee and MMAC really speaks to the intersection, not only of business, but of neighborhood design and the health of that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to ask you, um, we could go on and on and we won't today. But I want to ask you, is there anything else you want to tell the audience? You know, I think that the thing that I really want people to do is all of us start, start, start to think about ourselves and what we really want for our own lives. And when we hear the struggles or the yearnings of other people, really start to put ourselves in their positions and say, if I was in that situation, how would I want it handled? Or what would I want? Or what would I need? Because I feel like we're in this place right now where we're more awake and more conscious than I have ever seen us, especially around issues of like race, equity, racism. And if things are going to change, man, if it can't change now, we're in trouble. You know, like the, the height and awareness is so high. But there's also this realization on my end that for years, we have been trained to ignore mm -hmm. uncomfortable things. We've been trained to ignore poverty, racism, and ignoring them by pretending they don't exist, even if it's right in your face. To not think about that homeless person that you saw, because you can't go to sleep if you're thinking about, man, it's so cold and it's a homeless person. Like, up this uh, we went past you know you, the only way you go to sleep is by pretending you didn't see it you know and it's the same thing with racism or any challenges that we think about all of these kids that are going to these schools that aren't preparing them we have to start staying up at night thinking about that and being bothered by it yes. the homelessness we have to be bothered by it racism and the fact that people aren't able to get ahead and achieve just because their skin is a different color we have to start thinking about that and stop this knee-jerk reaction of protecting our own peace of mind by pretending that things do not exist or trying to i remember being told so many times whenever i would bring up uh racism i thought i was fa being faced with at work the reaction from my white colleagues was always always oh they didn't mean it like that oh maybe oh maybe you read it wrong and i'm like a hundred percent of the time i'm the one that's wrong <laughs> It's never, you know, but I know that that's a, that is the knee jerk. That's a protective, you know, thing that people do. And some people have stopped doing it, but there are others who are still in that mode where we talk about unconscious bias or talk about the internalized yes. or the internal racism or racist thoughts that we all have, all of us have, and we have to catch ourselves. And people deny that they have it or deny, oh, I'm colorblind. You know, we got to stop doing that because if there wouldn't be so many people saying that they're being discriminated against and crying tears and living lives they don't want to live if this wasn't a real thing. It's an actual problem that all of us can fix it and stop it from happening if we just be honest. Yes. And say, do I want this for myself? And if you don't want it for yourself, then it shouldn't be okay 
for other people to be living with it. I think if we get to the point where we're like asking ourselves, do I want that for myself? And the answer is no. And we can be real about it. I think we'll get so much closer to interacting with people in a loving way and, and seeing more equity across the board. You know, I, I, you, you were talking about that understanding of struggles and yearnings, and I love that. And I wrote as a note my th idea of empathy. But empathy only goes so far. You actually gave me the, the second piece of that. We as a social system need to be bothered by the issues that mm -hmm. people are facing every day. And frankly, <clears throat> not blaming them. And, and I'll say this in that we, the social gradient is, is, uh, is real. And for as, as people live shorter lives, it affects all of us. Yeah. And so the more that we can support the, the communities that are disinvested and disenfranchised, we'll all be healthier as a result. Mm-hmm, everybody. Corey Jo Biddle, you are an amazing woman and I am just so grateful for this conversation today. I have one final question for you. Will you come back again? I will. Dr. Nelson, if you in, uh, invite me, I am here. Oh my goodness. I am, you're going to be a regular on my show. I might even have, we might, we might even have to co-host the show at one point. Ooh. But this has really been um, enlightening and I, I love what you do and what you stand for and um, keep just doing what you do. Thank you. Thank you so much. You too. You are such an inspiration and you are such a kind, loving, open spirit. I mean, we need more people just like you. Oh, I am, I am, I am, I, I honor your words. Thank you, Corey Joe Battle. We'll see you next time on the Days of Learning podcast. Thank you. What a fun conversation with Corey Joe Biddle. And yes, we didn't get to nearly half the questions that I wanted to ask her, but she really spoke to many of the things that, that were important to us in this journey um, and some of the lessons that we learned. She spoke of the idea of her own upbringing and how her mother encouraged her to explore outside of, of what she knew from the area of the north side of the city to going into the, the parts where there aren't many people of color. And she talked about this. Her mother taught her to navigate the systems um, and she used that phrase heavy switching and being able to switch from a, a more localized conversation that's embedded with culture to more of the, the structures. And we also discussed how the structures of our community are impacting the health of the community. But she's hopeful and she's thinking about this ways that we can think about business and health and how we can have this an intentionality with it. I think at the end of it, you know, she talked to us about this understanding of struggles and yearnings of all people. And as I mentioned, that we need to be empathetic to those struggles, but we also need to be bothered by those struggles. It's only then that we can learn to disrupt the current systems so the help of all people can be raised up. Thank you for joining us today on this Days of Learning podcast. We look forward to seeing you next time with our next guest to talk about health, 
wellness, medicine, community engagement, and of course, equity. I'm your host, David Nelson, and I thank you for joining us today. Continued blessings and good health to you and yours. <laughs>